Seats still available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings and salutations, friends. How are you? My name's Tim Hanlon, and the podcast that you've stumbled across, it's called Good Seats, still available. The curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. I can't thank you enough for stopping by and downloading us and giving us a listen to whatever you're doing, commuting or on an airplane or driving somewhere or just somehow can't fall asleep and you need something boring and, and monotonous to uh, to lull you into uh, into nap and, and sleep land. Uh, whatever the reason you're here, we uh, we thank you so much. And um, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll entertain you for a little while. We are uh, uh, veering back into basketball and the ABA again. And uh, we continue to be amazed by uh, the uptake in our conversations uh, around the ABA, we've had a bunch. Obviously, we talked with uh, our friend Pat Boone over the holidays and his uh, two-year ownership of the Oakland Oaks. We've uh, we've talked to uh, Dan Forer, who was the uh, producer and the director of the uh, the Thirty for Thirty ESPN movie about uh, the St. Louis Spirits called Free Spirits. As you know, we had a nice two-part conversation with Mark Bonteith uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, to talk about the Indiana Pacers, and we're going to revisit the Pacers again today. Uh, but from a different angle and different perspective. Uh, our guests today are Bob Nidalecki, who was uh, one of the star players and was uh, a rock, if you will, in that franchise's uh, ABA history uh, for just about every season, I think, save for one, where he had a couple of cups of coffee with a couple of other teams that wound up coming back and uh, was well known not only for his uh, his dogged play on the court, but his, uh, shall we say, uh, interesting uh, persona uh, off the court as well. The Joe Namath of the ABA, as he was uh, sort of referred to, uh, he also being a bar and uh, club owner with uh, a place called Nettos in the Meadows, uh, which was the place to hang out uh, in Indianapolis before, during, and uh, certainly after ABA Pacer games, and then some. Uh, he is joined uh, in our conversation with author and writer Robin Miller, who uh, together with, uh, with Netto and uh, Dick Tinkham, who is not in our conversation, but is also part of this uh, this book that we're going to be discussing. Uh, Dick Tinkham was the uh, one of the co-owners, co-founders, and folks to uh, to bring the uh, original ABA franchise uh, to Indianapolis in 1967. And uh, together, the three of them have uh, authored a book which comes out in a couple of weeks. It's called, uh, not surprisingly, We Changed the Game. And the subtitle is How a New League, a Small Group of Dreamers, 
and some amazing situations change the culture of a city and the face of basketball forever. And, you know, again, we had a, a nice sort of a, a scene setting with uh, with Mark Monteith a couple of weeks back, but this conversation is a little bit different in that we're going to be kind of dealing with folks who are literally in the midst of it, right? A, a key player, obviously one of the key architects of the franchise, and obviously somebody who, as a young cub reporter, a little green behind the ears, a little wet behind the ears, but we'll we'll find out how he matured as a uh, soon-to-become adult male uh, in the uh, literally in and around the locker room of the Indiana Pacers. Uh, and this book is uh, chock full of first-person accounts and stories, uh, not only the Pacers in Indianapolis, but the ABA. And um, you know, there, uh, as we'll allude to in this conversation, you know, there are only a handful of real places sort of sort of get some of these. Uh, these stories sort of firsthand. Obviously, Loose Balls, the uh, the seminal work by uh, Terry Pluto that came out back in the 90s, probably arguably the uh, deepest sort of tome of first-person uh, remembrances. But uh, other than that, you know, not a not a lot. I mean, a lot of historical accounts, and obviously uh, the book that Mark wrote was uh, very uh, deep and detailed. Uh, but uh, the first-person accounts uh, are kind of few and far between, and that's, uh, that's our conversation uh, this week, today, with Bob Nidalecki, and uh, Robin Miller uh, about the book, We Changed the Game, uh, coming up in a couple of seconds. Uh, A couple of things I want to sort of uh, talk about here in relation to this book. Uh, As you're going to hear in our conversation, the uh, portions of the the proceeds of this book uh, is going to uh, an organization, a, a charitable group called the Dropping Dimes uh, Foundation, which the guys are involved with and uh, is uh, uh, literally dedicated to uh, helping give back to former uh, ABA American Basketball Association players, uh, who you know, not uh, unfortunately, not like today's big time a- uh, NBA uh, players. Uh, you know, they don't get any pensions. They have no uh, sort of uh, uh, security uh, to depend on, and and clearly didn't make a whole ton of dough uh, during their days as uh, as players back in the late '60s and early '70s. So this organization, the Dropping Dimes Foundation, uh, is a is a noble cause, and. Um, it's great to see the uh, the uh, some of the proceeds of this book will be going to that foundation uh, to help uh, former ABA players who are, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, uh, financially uh, dependent uh, to at least get some kind of uh, uh, support uh, in their advancing age. And it's also interesting, too, because come April 7 in Indianapolis, uh, the Dropping Dimes Foundation uh, will be hosting a 50th ABA anniversary celebration. Uh, at the Banker's Life Fieldhouse there in Indianapolis. And um, uh, you can find out how to get tickets and more information about that big event, uh, as well as supporting, of course, uh, the Dropping Dimes Foundation at droppingdimes.org. That's droppingdimes.org. And uh, indeed, it's uh, well worth checking out. And uh, frankly, I'd love to show up and see if I can make make a a trek out there on April 7th to, uh, to join in on the 50th ABA uh, anniversary celebration. So our conversation with uh, Bob Nidalecki and Robin Miller coming up in uh, just a couple of seconds, and uh, we invite you to stay tuned for that. And let's see. Uh, promotionally, I want to remind you that uh, Audible audiobooks are uh, what we love and what we love to tell you about and encourage you to try for yourself. And uh, as a sponsor of the show, uh, we can't thank them enough for doing so, and we certainly encourage you to give them a try and get a free audiobook download uh, yours for the for just you know showing up at audibletrial.com slash good seats. Again, audibletrial.com slash good seats, and you're gonna get a free month of the Audible audiobook service as well as a free audiobook download for you to choose from over, I think it's over 185,000 and counting titles. 
uh, to choose from. And there's just, you know, you, you, there's, there's no excuse to not be able to find a book that, that's going to be interesting to you. I mean, this, it's like going into a vast library, closing your eyes, and if you can't find something, else, you know, you're on the wrong planet. But uh, audibletrial.com slash goodseats, it's the place to go to get your free audiobook download and a free one-month trial of the uh, Audible service. And again, I need to underline and stress this, you can cancel at any time. So there's, it's really a no-risk proposition. And uh, if you've been sort of thinking about uh, giving it a try and maybe giving a little love to your friend, uh, your friends here at the Good Seats Still Available podcast, uh, by all means, uh, give it a try and we appreciate your doing so. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Get your free download, your free book, and your free one-month uh, trial of the service now. And again, also, too, to our sponsors at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Uh, sportshistorycollectibles.com uh, is a veritable treasure trove of all kinds of fun stuff, whether it be programs or magazines or buttons or pennants or you name it, uh, cards, uh, uh, all kinds of interesting uh, memorabilia from uh, the teams and leagues that uh, somehow uh, are no longer with us or indeed are with us, but uh, we're uh, in various incarnations prior. And I, I believe you'll find some Pacers stuff at sportshistorycollectibles.com. You'll find plenty of ABA stuff for sure. And if you use the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout, you're going to get 15% off your purchases. Again, that's sportshistorycollectibles.com. And your promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off all of your purchases. And we thank uh, not only the site, but its proprietor, Dean Mitchell, for their sponsorship of our little podcast. Thank you so much. Give them a try, and we appreciate it. All right, let's uh, segue nice and smoothly, shall we? To our conversation with the great Indiana Pacer, Bob Nedelecki, and his uh, colleague, writer, Robin Miller. And uh, the book we're going to be talking about is called We Change the Game. Coming up, please enjoy. I think what you're saying is uh, what we've been hearing a lot, that the, the ABA is a lot of people want to know about it, but there's just not that much out there. I mean, it's like, you know, most of it's he said, she said, or somebody grew up and my dad used to go to the games. And it's a lot of it is, uh, is a third, fourth, fifth person narrative. And that's why we kind of put our heads together. This started about four years ago with Dick Tinkham, original pacer owner. And he was laughing to me, telling me all these stories he keeps reading, and 90% of them are true because they just don't know what they're talking about. And uh, so he said, before we before we pass on, let's tell them a real story. So that's what I kind of our book. It, it's not a, so to speak, a game and basketball book. It's, it's from three guys that were there, and we're telling the real stories. And some of them, some people don't like, but facts are facts, and and even myself, I've learned so much from talking to Dick in the last uh, three or four years. I, I was amazed at some of the stories that I never knew, and I was a player. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about sort of how this all came together. Uh, maybe Robin, as the sort of as I guess the uh, the, the chief ringleader on the uh, on the writing and the, the consolidation of I guess of the stories and and the narrative. Uh, perhaps you can give us a little bit of background as to how uh, you and Dick and Bob sort of uh, kind of came together and and decided that a book was uh, not only uh, worthwhile, but uh, the the manner in which uh, to tell these stories and bring them to life? Well, I mean, Ned and I have known each other for 50 years. I mean, he he uh, he, he adopted me when I was 18, 19 years old, covering the Pacers. Nobody, not, too many, not too many teenagers covered pro basketball. And so, 
you know, whenever we see each other, we always tell stories. We go see Slick. We get George and used to be Mel. We go to lunch and once a month. And there's so many great stories and so many great memories and so many characters. The ABA had everything. They had great basketball. They had exciting games. They had all these wonderful characters, this Wild West kind of atmosphere. And we were just, uh, they, you know, they'd been kicking this idea around before they, you know, they talked to a couple different people about doing it. And then uh, we just had a meeting at Dick's one day, and, and they said, would you be interested in, in, you know, helping us write our memoir about the ABA and the Pacers and how it saved the, how it turned the city of Indianapolis around and all that? Because Dick and I didn't really know each other that well. I don't think he really understood how involved I was until Neto told him. So I said, well, let's see, what's it going to pay? Nothing? Yeah, sign me up. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend three years writing a book for free. That'll be good. No, no, but I really didn't care because it was a definite labor of love because the story has never been told, Tim, and that's why it's such a cool story. Not because I wrote it or because I had anything to do with it. it when people read this book, they're going to be like, you've got to be kidding me because the way the Pacers survived and all the pitfalls they overcame and all the times they almost folded, and when you see the skyline of Indianapolis in 1968-67 and you see it today, and you look, there's one place you can look, and you can look at the Coliseum, and you can look at the Pacers, and you can say, without them, we'd never have all this. You know, and it's kind of interesting the way we found Robin. You know, Dick and I have been talking about this for over four years, and we talked to two or three different writers, and uh, and we, we it just kind of dawned on me that I thought, my God, you know, Dick and I were there. We're trying to tell this thing from a first-person uh, narrative instead of like 90, 99% of books out there are all third, fourth-person narratives. And I thought, my gosh, the one guy that was with us from day one, and, uh, you know, I, thought, I talked to Dick, and I said, you know, I just thought of something. I said, Robin Miller was there from day one. Well, Dick really wasn't that, like Robin said, up on Robin. He didn't realize that Robin was there from – literally traveling with the team since he was, uh, he was a uh, 18 year old virgin. And, uh, and we, and we, we took him under our wing and, uh, we, uh, he saw things that, uh, 99% of the writers out there never saw. I mean, it, it's one thing to write a book about sports and about teams and things, but if you look at most books and even loose balls, which is a fabulous book, uh, by Terry Pluto, it was still third and fourth person narratives. And if you look at a lot of these, well, I thought, you know, the rumor was, and, and somebody told me this, but this is the real deal. And, and the reason I got so fired up about it is when Dick told me the one story about the, about the game in 1969, he looked at me in the eye and said, do you realize what really happened? And I said, no, I said, I played in the game, but I don't work. And when he told me the story of how literally we were a we were a ten point underdog. We were supposed to lose, and the the board of directors of the Pacers had already had a meeting the day before. And if we lost that game, they had already made plans to fold the team, file bankruptcy, and it was it. That was done, and the league was done, and that was it. Had this happened, there wouldn't be a route. There wouldn't be a Colts. There wouldn't be a downtown. There wouldn't be a, a Banker's Life Fieldhouse. It just wouldn't happen. And I didn't know this. Slick didn't know it, and I said, "My gosh, you got to be kidding me!" And that's when he said, "We got to write a book." And tells, and then he starts telling stories about the merger. You know, he was he was the man that handled that started all this merger. Him and a guy named Dan Mason out of San Francisco. And the stories are almost like you got to be kidding. Like Robin said, you got to be kidding. You know, truth is crazier than fiction half the time. And that's why it was so much fun to write the book. 
Well, uh, let, let's go back for a second, uh, Bob. Let's 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 go into that story, right? Because uh, so I, I'd love to get a little bit more color on that. So you're saying 1969 or so, and you know, based on some of our previous conversations uh, about the Pacers, I mean, that was, you know, no doubt they were. And and, and you mentioned Terry Pluto in his book Loose Balls, right? He calls the Indiana Pacers the uh, the Boston Celtics of the ABA, and I, I don't think that's a, a too bad of a term because arguably the uh, the team, although you're mentioning a story which may uh, challenge the credibility of this was uh, perhaps the most stable franchise when you look back on it, right? Which may or may not be saying something, right? But um, but 69, 68, 69, I mean, the, the team was in the finals, for God's sakes, against the Oakland Oaks, and I want to hear the story. Okay, here's the story. See, you're, what you're doing is you're a fan, you don't know, and I don't mean to be derogatory, but you really don't know what you're talking about, see? The thing of it is, is we got into, we were into the playoffs in 1969, First round of the playoffs, we played, we played Kentucky, which everybody and their brother in Indianapolis hated. We got down 3-1. We were down 3-1 to the Kentucky Colonels in the in the first round of the playoffs. Now, I don't think there had been a team, and maybe one, but I don't think there had been a team in the playoffs in the NBA or either pro sports had ever come back from being down 3-1 in the playoffs but at that time. at that time. So we were a total underdog. The first year in the league, we got beat by Pittsburgh in the playoffs. Done. It was over. So we got Mel Daniels, and there's another story about that in there. But here we are in the seventh game. The place is packed. We're a 10-point underdog. Kentucky, nobody ever won. Everybody thought we were going to get beat. And the, and had we got beat, we didn't know this. The team had no clue that, the, that literally, bye-bye, the team is folding the next day. And the reason is, they had no money, and nobody wanted to put any money in. Fortunately, we won that series. We went to Miami. We beat them in four. And then we got to the playoffs and played Oakland, and we got beat, of course, in that final in that finals. But that gave the team enough money and enough revenue and enough season ticket support to make it through another year. Had that not happened. It was bye-bye, and none of us knew, not even the general manager of the Pacers knew this, just Dick Tankham and the board of directors. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story, and, uh, and the crazy thing of it is, you know, like I said, I didn't know it, but Dick Tankham sure did. Well, that, that, that's especially interesting. So I, I'm curious then, I mean, you must have had some inkling that the team wasn't doing all that well financially, or... Were you pretty much sort of insulated from that in, 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 in your first two years there uh, before this? Neto was chasing women and playing. He didn't know. He had no – those guys, had. they didn't pay any attention to any stuff like that. And, and, and you wouldn't – I mean, the Pacers led the league in attendance, so you're thinking, well, everything's great. But the problem was is that John DeVoe had been the guy that went out and gathered all the money, and he had died, and there wasn't anybody to take his place. And Tinkham's a full-time lawyer, and he's trying to figure out how the hell are we going to piece this thing together. And, and all the guys that threw in a couple thousand dollars to get the Pacers started, it was just a lark. It was something that, you know, it didn't cost them that much money, and they just kind of, well, we'll see how this thing goes. Well, they weren't going to put any serious money into it. So, you know, when Tinkham's watching this seventh game, it's standing room only, and they're standing on top of each other. It's one of the great atmospheres of all time. They carried Slick. There's a great picture of Neto carrying Slick off the court after the game's over. But Tinkham couldn't enjoy the game because he's sitting there sweating bullets thinking, if we lose, we're done. And if the Pacers fold, the league is the next thing to fold. Because if the Pacers can't make it, how the hell can anybody else make it? And the funny part is he, uh, he's right about one thing. 
the players were totally oblivious to all this. We were just playing the game. We thought it was going to go on forever. And you have to remember, it isn't like today where these guys got $20 million a year. You know, guys are make, the highest paid player on the team, maybe $22,000 a year. The entire team payroll was nothing. I mean, people, you didn't think of it in those terms back then. And, and truthfully, there was not one person, even Bobby Leonard, the coach, had no inkling that how, 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 you know, how close this whole thing was to blowing up. And the funny part of it is, throughout the book, there's also a couple other instances that happened, that not even with the Pacers, that the league, like I said, there's one title where they quote Dick Tinkham saying, and I won't say that the other cuss word, but he said the league was finished. For six hours, the league was completely finished, done, folded. And the way he brought it back together, literally by taking a guy in a bar and buying him a whiskey at 10 o'clock in the morning, save the league. And it's a great story. And it's true. Yep. All right. Well, so let's let's back let's back up for a second, right? So uh, I actually want to maybe sort of go back to how you both got sort of entwined in this uh, in this amazing story, the career arc of the ABA and the uh, the Indiana Pacers. Bob, I mean, you were you were a star player in uh, out of coming out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, right? And uh, you were in uh, you were a star at uh, at Drake, and and you were a, a second round draft pick in the NBA, I think, with the Rockets, the San Diego Rockets, correct? Um, and but then here is this sort of thing bouncing around literally and figuratively, this sort of ABA. How does the American Basketball Association even hit your radar? And then how does this even become even a, uh, an option uh, given uh, what ostensibly seems like a, a, pretty, a pretty sweet deal by being drafted in the second round by an NBA franchise? Well, back then, the second round pick, too, was like the 18th fifth in the draft. There's only 12 teams after the expansion of the NBA. But you have to remember, back then, the NBA was about was about fourth in popularity behind bowling. I mean, there was nothing. The NBA was zilch. There was no TV coverage. Nobody really knew much about the NBA. And and what uh, they, they sent me a contract, and the Pacers sent me a contract, and I had no – I really didn't even think about playing professional basketball because, you know, there was no money like it is today or anything. And I met with the Pacers. I talked to the San Diego, and – to make a long story short, the Pacers offered me a no-cut contract and more money, and uh, I went where the money was. Now it wasn't big money, but I was still—I was one of the highest-paid players on the team the first year, and I think I made like eighteen thousand and even got a Corvette out of the deal. But uh, uh, you know, in today's game, you know they're offering—you know—a <laughs> first-round draft choice is guaranteed to what ten, fifteen million dollars, no matter if you can dribble a ball or chew gum. It's a totally different world back then. And, and like I said, the NBA wasn't, you know, there was, it wasn't even televised back then. You'd have to watch video replays of Wilt and Russell playing together. If you wanted to see a uh, NBA game back then. And and I'll tell you one thing real quick to show you how television was. We have a, we show a P and L statement, which nobody's ever seen of the first year. And take them has it printed in the book. And I'm going to ask the reporter, you know, television now, I think they get, what, uh, $2.5 billion a year, that new contract they signed for uh, for television rights for a bet for television. What do you think the Pacers had a contract for television? They TV'd all the games through Channel 4. Guess what their total revenue for 1967 was? I'm going to ask you a quick question. Take a quick guess no matter what. Just just take I, a guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to guess. They put in, in that in the in the, the dollars of that era. I don't know. Let's say twenty five thousand dollars. 
Well, you take another zero off and you got it. You got it. $2,500. $2,500. Total revenue and television, where now it's almost a billion. I mean, think about that. And uh, people just, uh, the modern era, just I don't think they can quite understand this. That's why this book is cut so cool is because we're telling stories that aren't just made up or aren't just, hey, she said, she said, like the guy that caught the fish. And by the time it got back to the eighth person, it was a shark. This is the real deal, and, and I was even when I saw that P and L statement, I was shocked. And hell, I played there. <laughs> and so, how did how did you two get hooked up then? So, uh, uh, Robin, you were uh, you were you were what? Well, you were a, a team assistant. You were uh, getting involved in journalism. No, no, I, I was an eighteen year old sports writer at the Star, and I had just started at the Star. And um, I said, "Can I go out and write features on the Pacers?" And they said, "Yeah, whatever you want to do." You know, they didn't care. They they weren't going to pay me. To, they, I had to work in the office, but when I started doing Pacer features on my days off, or I'd go to practice, and I started to get to know the players, uh, and they print they print my stories. Well, Mike Storm was the general manager, and he's like, "Good Lord, I got this." P-. It's like having an extra PR guy because it was all these wonderful little features about the players and all this positive publicity. And so Storm came to me and said, "Listen." If you want to take your days off and go on the road with us, I'll get you a room and pay for your airplane ticket. Well, that's kind of un- yeah, that's a little bit unethical in today's world. But back then, we never thought, you know, nobody thought anything about it. So I start traveling with the Pacers when I'm, you know, I just turned 19, and you know, like I said, Neto was uh, Neto took pity on me, and uh, you know, it was the thing that's interesting is is we're not. Those guys, Neto and Roger and Mel and Freddie, they weren't that much older than I was, but they were that much more mature than I was, and it certainly showed. Plus, I looked like I was about 14 years old. So Neto nicknamed me Jimmy Olsen, uh, the cub reporter from the Superman series, and that kind of caught on. And, you know, they took me with them. Like he said, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a journalist-athlete relationship. It was when they went to the bar after the game, or a restaurant, or wherever they went, I went with them. So I got to see everything. It was, <laughs> it was, it was unlimited access, and it was, uh, it was one of the great times of my life. Well, it also seems pretty shrewd too, right? Because uh, that, uh, in some respects, it ensured in some way, shape, or form uh, some consistent coverage, right? And you know, it's my understanding. Well, it was very smart on Storen's part because he's like, "Look, I get this kid, this gung ho about writing about the Pacers." What the hell? I buy him an airplane ticket and get him a room. That that's no big deal. Well, that's exactly what we'll do. We'll make this thing work. So, and my from my standpoint, it was, you know, I got to hang with the the most pop. The Pacers really, had, it, you know, they by that time the second year they the third year they had really taken over the city. It be it would it be it was the first time we ever had a team to cheer for that people got behind and and. You know, Neto and they'd go into Sam's Subway after the game, and people give them a standing ovation. They get free food and free drinks, and it it caught the city's attention and it and it captured their heart. And we'd never had that before because all we ever had was Triple A baseball, minor league hockey. Uh, we had the Indianapolis Olympians for a few years, but that was basically Kentucky guys playing in Indianapolis. So we never had anybody to cheer for, and the Pacers were the first team we ever got behind. Well, let's talk about that. So, uh, Bob, in particular, uh, you know, you were definitely one of the star attractions, shall we say, right, on this team. And maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of a sense of sort of, uh, you know, what was sort of going on. I mean, obviously, you're in the ABA. You're, you're in this uh, this uh, new city. It's all not that far away from the Midwest, per se, but you're still in Indianapolis. 
Um, what was the fir- what were the first couple of years like in terms of your relationships with uh, with the fans and how quickly the uh, the uh, the fans took to to this team? Because it's my understanding that uh, a lot of people relatively quickly. Uh, you know, despite the questions, I guess, of the stability of the ABA really took to this Pacers franchise uh, to the point of of really trying to boost it as their true first uh, professional franchise of any sort uh, in the city of Indianapolis. Well, the first the first year, uh, you know, like the, they had a sellout the first night and people were all going home. But then, you know, we had some problems and we lost, started losing a little bit and we had some characters come in. I had the mumps for a month and people got hurt. We had a guy named Reggie Harding came and, uh, there's a interesting story about Reggie in the, uh, in the book and, you know, Reggie, uh, Reggie might or might not show up for a game. The great talent just never, uh, never came to the games too much. And, uh, you know, after we got swept in the playoffs, it was, uh, it wasn't the best summer we ever had. And then, of course, towards the end of the summer, we got Mr. Daniels. And that, again, is another crazy story that's in the book, how they got Mel. I mean, it's amazing. And uh, had they, I can tell you right now, for a fact, had we not got Mel Daniels, there wouldn't be a Colts, there wouldn't be a downtown, there would be nothing, because Mel was part of that team that beat Kentucky. Uh, and I can tell you that for an absolute fact, that had Mel Daniels, not, the trade not happened for Mel Daniels, we wouldn't be talking right now. But um, uh, we've got that in the book and things like that. But the second year, when we won that that playoff series against Kentucky, it was like it was almost like that was the that was the that was the turnaround. That's when the city everything came together. People just went berserk. We got to the finals, and then of course the following year we ended up winning the championship, which was a, a great thing. And uh, you know the thing is, we were lucky. We had a we had a great team. You could not put together a team like we had in today's in today's world, because number one, all the guys with all the scouts and all the you know the draft and thirty teams, you could have never put a guy like Roger and me and Freddie and Mel. And then we get George McGinnis in the fifth year. George McGinnis comes here. Now, you, George is the number one player in the United States. You think we could have, and we just won a championship. You think there would be any way in hell we could have got him in the draft? No way today. We, it just couldn't have happened. So, so many things happened back then that just couldn't happen today. And it, 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 it's just an amazing story. And the more you read, the more you say, this, is this, if this is true, it's crazy. And it, and it really was. And, and, and like I said, we had an usually an usually talented team, and I'll tell you, the key was when Slick came to us. Uh, if, if you notice uh, in today's game, chemistry wins. You can have the greatest players in the world if they don't play together. New York is a type of example when they got Carmelo and all those guys. They couldn't play together. Slick came. We all we had great, great chemistry, and uh, that was the key to our wins. And, of course, I think Roger Brown was probably one of the top five players that ever played basketball, period. And people, it's a shame we'll ever know how great he really was. Well, he, he was. Uh, it also <laughs> he, he was a, he was on another he, he was on another planet. Well, it, it also seems too that the Pacers were quite good uh, at assembling high quality talent, right? So, no doubt, you're mentioning the heart and uh, and the the spirit of the team, but obviously with just unquestioned talent that was able to be fused to play together. Um, I guess I, I'm really curious as to sort of how. Uh, how, in your from your perspective, the the Pacers, it almost seems in retrospect they almost cornered the market on some of the most consistently 
dominating talent uh, during the nine-year you know run in the ABA. I, I'm just I'm really curious as to how. You know, was it the general management? Was it the you know, was it I, I, luck? Uh, was it the uh, the finding the local players which they became really good at? A lot of it was luck. I mean, you can't tell me that some back then they didn't even have scouts. In '67, I don't think a scout was Davy Crockett. I mean, they didn't have any scouts out there. They were there. Uh, it was a lot of luck. But you have to remember, myself, Freddie, Roger, the first team. Then we got Mel. And we stayed together. That nucleus of four guys were together. And then we got George the fifth year. But that nucleus stayed together for almost seven years of that team franchise. And you don't see that hardly anymore. These guys jump from team to team and free agency and everything. But we had the same nucleus for almost seven years. And that was a big, big part of it. And the other thing that you got to remember is, Mike Storm worked for the Cincinnati Royals, so he knew about Freddie, and they wanted to get Oscar Robertson, and Oscar Robertson decided he wasn't he wasn't leaving the NBA. But he told him, "You got to go get a guy named Roger Brown." So, Storm, Mike Storm didn't know who Roger Brown was, but he found he soon found out after Oscar Robertson recommended him, "You go get him." Uh, I don't know who who picked. I'm not sure who who said let's draft Neto, but you know, like he said, he was being honest. He didn't know that he was going to play pro basketball, and he has this fabulous hook shot. And he's got all these great offensive skills, so they were kind of lucky to get Neto. Oscar Robertson to thank for getting for getting uh, Roger. Uh, Dick Tinkham is 100 percent thank. He's the guy you thank for getting Mel because he basically stole him from the Minnesota Muskies for nothing, and. It just fell into place, and then the ABA had territorial drafting. Well, they sure as hell weren't going to let the Kentucky Colonels draft George McGinnis, not when he grew up in Indianapolis wanting to play for the Pacers. They they were smart enough to say, okay, George, you know, if you're going to play in the ABA, it's going to be with the Pacers because that's your team. And it's that's how everything just kind of fell into place. And that's, not actually, that's, that's a little hedging it because George was signed as an underclassman back then when the NBA said, don't you do that? And they were right in the middle of merger negotiations. And there's a funny story in there about one of the NBA people were saying, now, Dick, maybe you shouldn't sign any NBA guy right now. And Dick said, well, I signed one guy. And the guy said, who? And he said, George Guinness. And the guy about, pardon my expression, peed his pants from the NBA and said, why did you do that? But, you know, the rest is history. But there's there's just there's just all these crazy stories that could not happen in in today's uh, in today's world and and you know you know like Robert said we we just uh, we lucked out we had some we had some great players and I'll tell you the reason the reason Oscar said Roger, Roger was so good is because he used to play against him uh, in the summers and realize this guy's as good as I am and that's the truth. Yeah. Well, it, it also seems too. I mean, Robin, you mentioned the territorial draft uh, uh, concept. It, it it feels to me that the Pacers were almost masterful uh, at their ability to find uh, talent within, especially the state of Indiana, through whatever means, right? Purdue and Indiana, and you know, somebody was born and raised in Indianapolis. Uh, you know, it seems like uh, they're in addition to the the quote unquote star players that they somehow accrued. Uh, there was also, I mean, Rick Mount, and I mean, you, 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 there's, a, there's a, a bevy of of folks that were almost known quantities uh, by the fans uh, in their college careers uh, that you know almost naturally uh, made sense not only as as quality players up and down the court, uh, but also from a marketing perspective to get fans in the uh, in the seats. Well, you know, 
Storm knew Look. that he was. He knew that you're you're starting a brand new league and a brand new team. So he went and got Jimmy Rail, who was a star at Kokomo in Indiana. He went and got Ron Bonham, who was Mr. Basketball for months. He went to Neto's buddies. So you had a couple of local guys, Bobby Joe Edmonds from Christmas Addicts. So you had three local guys that people had actually heard of. And then Billy Keller came along from Purdue, and nobody knew he was going to be a great three-point shooter, but he turned out to be a fabulous three-point shooter. And Rick was, you know, one of the great shooters of all time. It didn't really work out for him like it did Billy and, and Ned on the other guys, but he was part of a championship team. And it, they understood, Storen understood it was important that, that you had, it was the Indiana Pacers, and I think he really took that to heart, that he was going to try and get as many guys that were, known around the state as he could that could play basketball. I mean, you know, there was they, they were all they were, every every draft choice and every you know, every sign he wasn't a hit, but the Pacers had pretty good success. But like Neto said, the reason they were so successful is George, Roger, Mel, Freddie and Neto, they kept that nucleus, especially the the, the original guys. And that just that can't happen anymore and and that's why they were so successful. And when Slick came in, and gave him some discipline and some direction. That's all it needed. And from that point on, you know, it's like when they played the Knicks and the Bull- and the Washington Bullets, the Baltimore Bullets had exhibition games and played them to a standstill. And I think everybody, you know, I remember interviewing Walt Fraser after the Knicks game, and he said these guys could play with anybody in the NBA. He goes, they got all kinds of talent. I mean, that was, I think that really opened people's eyes, that those first exhibition games. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and, interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly. Uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis, Uh, the major indoor soccer league with the L.A. Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that, too, is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the 
uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. Let's talk about some of the play, right? So, um, you know, I, everything from the arenas, which I'm sure, you know, uh, ranged from uh, pretty decent to uh, borderline ramshackle. Uh, the uh, the scheduling, I'm sure, was uh, a bit grueling uh, and not necessarily glamorous. Um, I'm just, uh, I, I guess I'd love to get a little sense from you guys, having been, uh, you know, playing and on the road, what sort of, you know, what sort of the day-to-day experience was like, Um especially perhaps with rumors of uh, the league or various teams or frankly, actually teams uh, folding or running, uh, running down into the ground. Uh, what, what was the experience like? I mean, did you feel like quote unquote top flight pro players or did you sometimes wonder, you know, what you had gotten into and, uh, and how it was taking a toll on your body and, and the quality of play or, or was it just too much fun to kind of worry about any of that kind of stuff? Well, the Pacers were different. I mean, we never, this was the most, probably the best run organization in the league. I mean, we never had to worry about our checks not bouncing. I mean, I can remember Doug Moe and Larry Brown telling me when they played New Orleans, they'd get their checks on, and, and the team, got, they'd all sprint to the, so could get to the bank first because they were worried that some of the checks wouldn't, ca- wouldn't cash. We never, ever thought that. I mean, I can remember playing, I never once, even thought of the league folding, of the team having money problems. We just didn't think about that then. And there was really no rumors of that then here in Indiana. Now, I'm sure there was in other teams like Houston. I mean, the cab, cab drivers didn't even know Houston had a team down there half the time. But, uh, you know, we, we flew we flew coach like everybody else did. Uh, we, we had 6 $7 a day uh, meal. $7 money. a day per diem, baby. That's right, and Freddie and, and Freddie and Mel would go buy a bucket of fried chicken and sit in their room all day and play cards, and and this kind of things went on. And towards the end, the last couple of years, uh, the finally organized a player association, and they got us so we could fly first class, so we at least have uh, you know leg room and everything. But I think even the NBA flew uh, flew coach back then. It was it was just totally totally uh, different than it is today. But uh, you know, you know what they don't understand, and the reason we uh, we named this book "We Changed the Game" is because we did change the game. And even Walt Frazier said, and we quoted in the book uh, in an article about oh last summer he was talking about the ABA, and he basically said the NBA today is the ABA. And if you look at it, you're not watching an NBA game; you're watching an ABA game. I mean, what was it Houston took fifty three pointers? Fifty three pointers the other night. 53 pointers. I mean, I mean, the game has the, and you know, it's like everything, everything has to change. You know, cars change, uh, everything, clothes change. The NBA had to change. The NBA was dying and the ABA came along and brought some showtime to the, you know, we, we were the ones that started cheerleaders. We're the ones that started the dunk contest. We started the all-star games extravaganza and and some of the people in there actually we interviewed a girl named sandy knapp who was president of the indianapolis sports corp and worked for the pacers she does an article in the in the book about how it not only changed the game on the court 
but it changed the game in the front office and marketing and everything else. So it's pretty interesting. Here's the other thing, Tim. There was a there was a feeling for a guy like Roger Brown that had been blackballed, completely screwed over from playing in the NBA, and and he was very skeptical about leaving his job and dating. But he finally got going, and he's one of those guys that got a that actually got a second chance to, uh, to play basketball. And there were so many guys in the ABA that were thankful because, was, like Neto said, there were eight teams. There was hardly any – there was no place to play unless the Eastern League or AAU. So, so many guys that were really good basketball players didn't have anywhere to go, and then the ABA starts. So, there was a feeling of – there was an appreciation that doesn't exist today. There's, these guys – every guy – everybody was happy to have a place to play, and they'd been kind of gotten a reprieve that, my God, we're getting paid to play basketball. And that's the way they and – you, and you got that feeling from them. That's the way they felt. Yeah, back then, back then there was, I think, uh, 66 or 65, there was eight teams in the NBA, 80 players total. Now there's 30 teams with, a, with, uh, with 14 or 15 on a team. I mean, it's, it's just it, – it, 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 when you look at all the numbers, it, it, it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. As a player, uh, what were the uh, the most uh, intriguing and fun parts of, of the game and the changes of the rules, and what, what were the most daunting, right? You had the three-point shot, you got the 24-second uh, shot clock, uh, you, you got a couple of other sort of other things. Uh, was it an easy adjustment uh, to these uh, uh, relatively new and untested rules, or did you kind of just blend right in, or, or was it kind of a mixed bag? And how were your fellow players dealing with uh, this sort of wide-open and more woolly approach to, to play? Well, I think the first year or two, uh, you know, the three-pointer was new. And pe- a lot of people were hesitant to take it for a while. I and mean, it was kind of all of a sudden, all of a sudden, people started emerging. Players started emerging. Somebody I could out and just shoot the, shoot the lights off from three-pointer. All of a sudden, he became a pretty good asset. I mean, and it changed how some players were playing. I mean, there was guys who could shoot like a Billy Keller. Now, if they didn't have a three-point shot, Billy Keller would be nearly as effective because Billy Keller was not the you know he couldn't jump an inch off the floor. He was five foot ten, but the guy could hit three pointers all day long. He's a great shooter, and it, it opened up the game. It, it just it like I said, it changed the game of basketball. Period. What do you think, Robert? Well, there's a there, in one of the chapters. The, our, the best chapter in our book is called "Which One of You Assholes Is Tinkum," and that's that's the name of the that's the name of the chapter. And the guy that said that was Ned Irish, the guy that owned the New York Knicks. So when Tinkham went to his first merger meeting, you know he got he got besieged by this guy. This guy says we don't we don't appreciate guys like you suing us because they had to file a lawsuit. It's a long story, but it, 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 it helped lead to the merger. And Ned Irish told Dick, he says, I I don't know a lot about you or the Pacers or the ABA anything, but I'm going to tell you two things. We ain't never going to have a shot that counts three points, and we ain't playing with a beach ball. Well. The three-point shot revolutionized basketball, and it's and today it's revolutionized college, high schools, and the pros. Because if you don't shoot it, you don't have a prayer. And I think that was another part of the ABA. Like Red Arback, the dickhead of all time, from the Boston Celtics, hated the idea that that, that that there was another league. And he said this thing won't last six months. These guys are clowns. They're playing with a beach ball. Nobody takes them serious. Blah 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 blah. Well, what? What really happened was, is between the Pacers, Dr. J, Spencer Haywood, George Gervin, David Thompson, all these guys that came into the ABA and, and followed Neto and Roger and Mel's lead became 
they were some of the best players in the league. And it didn't take any – you didn't have to know a lot about basketball to say, shit, these guys are as good as anybody. And that's that's exactly what the ABA did. And like Neto said, the first ABA All-Star, you know, they had a, a dunk contest by the, by the early to mid-'70s. And, and suddenly people are talking about the ABA. And it's it's a, it's a, when Bobby Leonard was playing in the NBA, he said, you know, you, you you brought the ball up slow and backed it in, and nobody ran. There weren't other than the Celtics, nobody had a fast break. It was a boring game that nobody really cared about. The ABA was just the opposite. The ABA was Wild West and tennis shoes, three pointers galore. The Pacers one time, now they just score 172 or 177 points one time. 177. 177 points, Tim, in an, in an ABA game. It was the all-time record. It might still be. I don't know. And it, that. People got excited about that because it was fun to watch. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Dave McCarthy was one of the great coaches in the ABA, good old babies. Magnolia Mouth, he was from the South. He had that Southern accent. And he told me the story. He walked into the locker room after we beat that. We beat Pittsburgh, I think, 177 to 144. So we beat him by 43 points. And uh, he walked into the locker room. He said, boys, I just want to tell you something. He said, them damn Pittsburgh Poppers scored 144 points against the Pacers, and actually all the guys thought they, the Pittsburgh killed us. And then he looked at it and said, and them damn Pacers won by 43 points. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, and that was, uh, you know, he was, but that, it was, uh, it was you know, yeah. I get, I get, I start, but I can't stop talking. You know? No, it's great. I mean, it's yet, yet another defensive struggle in the ABA, right? Um, the, <laughs> Um, so, well, okay. So uh, give me a sense then of, um, of, uh, of the play. I mean, were they, you know, it seems to me like the players truly enjoyed uh, and, and as Robin was sort of hinting at, uh, and many were actually grateful for the opportunity, especially if they couldn't get, get a, get a look at the NBA and stuff, because look, this is a theme that we've, we've, we've heard and seen in our previous conversations uh, for a, a bunch of leagues uh, and sports, during, especially during the the late '60s and, and early uh, mid 1970s, right, where you had a bunch of challenger leagues, right, the the WHA against the uh, the NHL, and then the forced expansion that that brought about. Certainly, the ABA kicking the butt of a very staid and boring, and and uh, to your point, Bob, not even sort of well known or televised uh, sport in the of uh, of basketball. The WFL, uh, you know, misguided and. Uh, and floundering as it was, right, was a, a challenge to football. Um, it, it it just you get the sense, and you know, I, I sadly I wasn't there for for much of it, but you get the sense that not only was it more fun, but it just it just brought more life to the game, and 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 the players, uh, by many accounts, just seemed to have embraced uh, the ability to to play, express, uh, wear their their hair long like Darnell Hillman and the E of the the Major League fro and. And it just seemed like it was a, a more free, freer spirit, so to speak, uh, kind of a, a, a play. Yeah, the NBA was pretty buttoned down and had its little rules and didn't approve of this and didn't approve of that. And, but I'll tell you one thing that people don't realize is that, and it, it was in both leagues back then compared to today, it was a physical, physical game. They don't... Uh, it was much more physical than it is today. I mean, I mean, there were like how many? Well, we had eighty-two games the first year. How many fights do we have, Robin? 82? Oh, fifty, <laughs> at least. And there was no technicals. It was a tough, rough game, and and there wasn't any of this coddling guys or the 
the little shoving. I mean, it was a tough, tough game. And and I think, I think today's game they've they've cleaned it up a little bit because maybe because of television or the fans, they don't want to see a fight every other game. But I mean, it was a it was a it was a very physical game back then. It was fun. I mean, it, the 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 running joke we had on our team was the first year Mel Daniels was here, we had eighty two games, and we had eighty two fights, and Mel started all of them. <laughs> <laughs> was, was the was the refereeing especially bad? Is that is that a, am I or am I just reading it? Oh no 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 no! no. The ref, referee was good. The refereeing was good. It's just uh, one time we had a game. We had a guy playing on our team named Spider Bennett. And he was mad at one of the Kentucky players, and we really had a timeout. He just walked down to the Kentucky huddle, poked a guy on the shoulder, and cold cocked him. And no technical, nothing. Just said, "Don't do that again." I mean that was that was the way it was back then. It was a little different than it is today. Of course, back then a technical was twenty five dollars, not twenty five thousand like it is today. All right. Well, Robin, you you had a pretty good bird's eye view of the players, both not only on the court, but let's be honest, uh, off the court as well. Uh, Bob, I'll get to you in a second because you've got some interesting uh, little tidbits that we want to uh, unearth a bit. But but Robin, I want to get your sort of uh, quote unquote objective uh, uh, perspective of. Uh, some of the, I don't know, uh, the off-court antics and or the personalities, shall we say, uh, and, and how those personalities were expressed, uh, not on the court, but uh, but off of it, uh, that you're willing to share, of course. Well, I mean, there are a bunch of young guys who've got a second lease on life playing pro basketball, and they didn't fly out after the game was over. They got to stay in the city that night, so all these guys could set up residency, and everybody had a girlfriend in a certain city, and then you had you had this great competition for who's going to, who's going to get laid and who's going to pick up who. And Neto made him crazy because he never spent a dime on a drink for a woman in his life. And he ended up leaving half the time he left with the girl that they were all buying drinks for. So that pissed him off. And it was just, it was, it was, it was, it was the late sixties and early seventies. And it was the sexual revolution. And it was, it was a great time to be alive. And these are young guys, young athletes enjoying life. And there's never, you know, there's nobody had any more fun playing basketball or or chasing women or just living just living day to day than than the guys did in the ABA. It was just, it was like, God, we're we're getting paid. This is really a lot of fun. I I, I kind of like I could get used to this life. So, you know, the the guys on our team that were the lady killers were Steve Tubin, uh, Tom Tom Thacker, Neto. Uh, Billy Keller did okay after some, he, I think Neto gave him some tips and he finally learned how to pick up a woman. He got better, but it was, it was just, uh, you know, I think that was the, it was no big, it was probably no different than how kids in the early twenties lived their life everywhere else. It was just that these guys all stuck together and there were no cliches on the team. Everybody hung out together. Everybody went out to, went out to the bar together. Everybody went out to eat together and there was no color line and there was no, clicks and it was just it's the kind of thing that probably could never happen again and it was just kind of natural everybody just kind of was you know slick really preached you know we're a family we're a team we're not going to have a bunch of we're not going to have two or three guys that go on their own way everybody's together and i think he really helped mold that attitude and it just carried on so if you if you became a member of the pacers i remember when our becker came here from houston he he thought he died and gone to heaven because He's hanging out with Neto and 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 Billy Keller and the boys and and having more fun than they're winning basketball games and they're, they're going afterwards and it was like 
God, this is like this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, well, that that but that said though, the uh, you know the uh, uh, I don't want to call it partying lifestyle, but certainly the uh, the uh, the social lives that uh, that uh, you know uh, endured after after the uh, the game was over, right? That it's kind of hard though to to burn the candle at both ends, though, right? I, without sort of the quality of play suffering, or or am I just being not these guys? They played they played they played pretty well when they were hungover. Uh, and Bob, uh, can you attest to that, uh, either personally or uh, you know, uh, uh, what is your sense of how 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 guys came back onto the court after perhaps some interesting uh, extracurricular activities? I opened my bar in 1970, a uh, club that I opened, and uh, you know it was an interesting story in Indianapolis. You, you see, I don't know how, how old are you by the, by, by any chance? Uh, I, I am my a, interviewer. I am 52, but I'm uh, I am certainly aware okay. of of Nettos in the Meadows, and I think that's what you're alluding okay. to, right? Well, what I was saying is, back in the late 60s, you got to remember there there was no Indianapolis was there was still the racial problems, and and there wasn't any place. In the city, I can remember that blacks and whites mingled and had fun and did everything. And that, my place, that didn't that didn't cut it. Everybody had a good time. Black, you know, it didn't matter. We had a great time at my nightclub. And I've talked to some people, some leaders, actually some leaders in the city have told me, he said, the Pacers and your club helped heal the city a lot it was it was fun and it really was we never had a fight we never had a problem we had all kinds of guys in there but as you were saying about the performance the best the best game i ever played was the best scoring game i scored 43 points against the la stars back in 70 or 71 i can't remember when it was or something like that but the night before we played in miami and i stayed up all night with steve chubin and a couple of young stewardesses, and I I got to the airport, and I, I never I didn't sleep a wink. I'd had about 350 beers. <laughs> I got on the I got on the plane. We flew to L.A. that early that morning. We had an afternoon game for some reason. I don't know how we did it. I had the best game of my life. So <laughs> the misnomer is you drink a few beers or you have fun the night before. You're in shape. I mean, you're in physically good shape, and I don't think. I don't think uh, a couple of beers the night before is going to affect your uh, affect your game in, in the least. At least didn't mind. Maybe some guys it does, but uh, how about Chico Vaughn, uh, Robin? Yep, Chico Vaughn and Charlie Williams. They they line up for they played at Pittsburgh. They line up for the jump ball, and whoever was guarding would just go up and smell their breath and go, "Oh, baby," because they'd be drinking <laughs> right up till the game started. <laughs> and that's the truth. And they could shoot it. And they could shoot it sober, or they could shoot it drunk. They were hell. They were both hellacious. So, walk us through uh, a, a night at Nettos, uh, Bob. I mean, uh, what would one see and expect? Uh, I'm assuming after the game, it was a popular hangup, but also, you know, uh, not on game nights too, right? Yeah. Well, you know, funny part during the game, it got so bad that people would actually leave at the end of the third quarter to get in line to get a seat. I mean, we'd have a line around the block. And- and it, it was great, and, and we we go inside, and uh, you know it, it was fun, and even and during the during the uh, even the off season, it, it was you know people would show up, and it just uh, and during race time it was great. We had a lot of race drivers come in, and the, you know the race drivers come in, all the girls come in, and we had some movie stars show up. Uh, James Garner used to come all the time to to the place, and 
and uh, we just had we, we just had a lot of fun, but it was good. Clay, I mean, I'd say drink a few beers, but it wasn't. There was no fights. There was no. It was just. It was just a really fun place to be at, and and uh, you know, I can't believe I survived four years of it, but it was fun. Well, how was it to be an actual bar owner? Well, yeah, we let, I don't. We let Robin. Robin. We give Robin a double shot of Pepsi. Robin wasn't too much of a drinker. No, I didn't drink. I watched. I observed. <laughs> I'm sure that's the case, and I'm sure that's not the first little fib or, or stretch of the truth that uh, that you've. Uh, no, I, I I don't drink. I don't. I never did. <laughs> I never drank. Robin, Robin's a non-drinker, believe it or not. Well, you uh, you guys mentioned uh, sort of uh, the uh, uh, the the impact that uh, that the Pacers uh, had uh, on the city and the uh, of Indianapolis and the state of Indiana. Um, I think probably most uh, the most uh, obvious. Uh, expression of that was the uh, the arrival, the building of, and the the, the subsequent arrival of uh, Market Square Arena. And it's my understanding that Dick Tinkham was was very instrumental uh, in that process. And in addition, uh, it was also, frankly, probably the most uh, uh, outward uh, show of support, I guess, by the community around this team uh, in in all its professionalism, albeit still in the ABA at that point. Um, I, I'm really curious to sort of get your senses of both of you of of that transition from the fairgrounds to uh, arguably the one of the most you know state of the arts uh, downtown stadiums uh, arenas uh, at that time and and did you you know at that point did you kind of think that you truly had made an impact and it arrived uh, even though the ABA was still you know not necessarily guaranteed going forward. Well, you know, we could tell you the story about that. There's a whole chapter about that in the book, how it happened, the things that happened that were just, like you said, you, 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 Ripley's Believe It or Not, the way that the way it happened with the arena is, is fascinating. And, and Dick Luger was right in the middle of it, and Tinkham was right in the middle of it. And it, it was almost, they had originally planned to build the arena out by where the Colts facility is now on, on the west side. And how that all came to be, and how it, how it all fell apart, and how boom, boom, twenty minutes later, everything uh, came together with the arena. Because I don't think, had we not built the arena, uh, we just were, you know, we were getting too big for the Coliseum, and, and they were talking about moving the team, and all kinds of wild stuff that went on. But I don't want to tell you too much because that's why I want people to read the book. But I think they, I think they'll be fascinated with that chapter. Don't you think, Robin? The best, the, the name of the chapter is the MSA, the miracle of MSA or the MSA miracle, whatever. It's, it is the, it's the biggest, it's the biggest upset fluke. The fact that it, the, the, that MSA ended up being where it was at the time it was, the way it was funded, is a typical ABA story that you just shake your head and go, well, that could never happen today because it couldn't, <laughs> couldn't happen. No way. Now, do you do you think the the uh, the building, the construction of that arena um, was uh, instrumental in the Pacers being one of the four teams that got absorbed into the NBA two years later in '76, or were there other factors? Yeah, no, I think sure. I think it was more the fact that we had such good attendance and was so loyal. So, do you know? Right. We had such good attendance. We had such good teams and. Uh, and and the ownership we had, uh, we had one guy, uh, one guy mainly Bill Eason, who was uh, willing to put up a big chunk of money to to buy us in the NBA. I mean, the best deal in the world, of course, is the St. Louis guys. I mean, they 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 said, no, we aren't going to do it, and they end up getting almost a billion dollars out of the deal for not going in the NBA. So 
you know, you know, but the, the, the paces were a natural and, uh, and, and that story is kind of in there. Dick goes through that story and the way the merger went down. And it was, uh, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing that you just, you read this stuff and you say, you know, this is crazy. How, how could this stuff happen? But, uh, you know, the, the Pacers, uh, I think the Pacers were destined to be in the NBA no matter what. And, you know, the thing of it is, like, Bob Costas wrote us a great, great review of the book. And in the, in the thing he states, we are the only, you realize, we are the only ABA team that kept the same city, the same name, and ended up in the NBA, the original. We're the only original team that ever did that. And the rest of them, like the Spurs, they were originally Dallas Chaparrales. Uh, Denver was the Denver Nuggets, and then the Denver somebody else's. And the Nets were the New Jersey Nets, and then they became the New York Nets and things like that. So the Pacers have a, some really uh, really great and fascinating history as far as that goes. Why, um, Bob, did you uh, uh, not uh, segue into the NBA uh, with the team? Uh, were you uh, sort of near the end of your career? Did you have the opportunity and chose not to? Did you? Well, that, I'm just that, curious as to. That's a long story. Uh, my The ninth year I was going to play, uh, uh, I really wasn't very happy with the team. And, and uh, that was, there was kind of some personal things that happened there. But the funny part of it is after the ninth year, I, I, they, they wanted me, uh, they called me in the front office and said, well, if you want to retire, you know, you can do this. And I, I made them a deal. I said, okay, I got about three times my salary to retire that I did. I think I forget what I was making, but I said, you take it three times and, and spread it out over six years. And I'll be happy to retire, which I did. And that was the Binford group and, and Tom Binford and those guys, they might've been smart businessmen, but they didn't know squat about basketball. And, uh, and, and so I retired, but then I, the funny part in the next year, I went over to Cleveland where Bill Fitch was coaching. And I knew Bill Fitch from Cedar Rapids. He coached co college and I almost played for Cleveland for a year. Uh, I, I could have played, uh, in the NBA for a year, but I had a house here, a dog here, and I was just getting married and basically I was burned out. I just, I just, I was ready to quit. I was just ready to hang them up and, uh, you know, maybe I should have stayed there a couple of years longer, but you, you know, you get to that point where, you know, I was 34, I think. And, and all of a sudden overnight, your body just, you lose that step. And believe me, it happens overnight. You all of a sudden that step just isn't there. So, you know, I just said, uh, ta-ta, <laughs> I retired. Well, look, it's also a testament to your your knowledge of thyself, right? And, uh, you know, there are plenty of players, both, uh, this is a, an age-old issue, right, who kind of don't really know how and when to, you know, say enough is enough and uh, perhaps push it a little too far or perhaps worse, you know, embarrassment and, and all those kinds of things, right? So that's a, that's a testament to you and as a player uh, to, to knowing thyself. But that's it's also, by the way, and Robin, if you want to chime in, it's also seems to be a testament to uh, this team and the city, right? Because uh, you're still, uh, you know, a part of the Indianapolis uh, uh, community, and and it seems like a lot of uh, other former players uh, stuck around as well after their careers wound down. And that tells, you, I think, that tells you a lot about the relationship. Mel stayed here. Roger stayed here. Obviously, George grew up here, uh, and Neto stayed here. I mean, it was just. It was a, it was a, it's, it's a cliche of all time, but it was a family like no other. And it's, you know, how many guys, I mean, we went over and saw Slick today, George McGinnis and Neto and I went and saw Slick today. And, you know, we go to lunch once a month or twice a month. And when Mel was still alive, him and Neto had lunch 
you know, two or three times a week and always went and saw Slick. I just don't think that happens any, I don't, I don't, I think it's a, it's such an anomaly. I don't think very many pro franchises, whether it's basketball, baseball, or football, has that kind of camaraderie and it lasts for 40 or 50 or 60 years. And, and how would you guys describe uh, the current day Pacers in the NBA and uh, the embrace or lack thereof or or what of the original sort of foundational ABA version of the Pacers? Is there is there a continued love and or appreciation? Is there is there a lack thereof? And maybe, by the way, in general, the ABA and the NBA per per your observations, uh, is there sort of lost history there and and maybe a need to kind of rekindle and reheat and re truly remember uh, some of these things. I mean, obviously the title of your book sort of imp- implies it, but I- I'm also wondering, I th- it seems like Indy uh, is maybe an exception uh, to that rule where uh, this franchise is just in, uh, intertwined with its history, uh, perhaps more so than any other franchise. <laughs> what do you think, Robin? You can't have that no answer to this question. I'll answer it because I, I... – Here's the thing. If Slick wasn't the play, wasn't the color analyst, I don't know. I mean, the Pacers sometimes they act like they really care about the ABA, and sometimes they act like they really don't care. And it's they've honored, they've had some, they've had some decade nights and things like that, which are really cool. And I think when you see the response from the audience, that should tell the Pacers everything they need to know that. It, this is your heritage, boys. This is what got you started. Without these guys, there wouldn't be any Pacers, and you wouldn't have a job. So I think that it's – I don't know. I don't think reluctance is the right word. I, I just don't know that it, they're uh, – maybe, you know, some of the guys have worked – I mean, Darnell still works for the Pacers. Billy and, and Neto worked there for a while. Mel was a scout for 30 years. So it wasn't like they turned their back on the ABA guys. It's just that – I would think as much success as they had in the ABA, and they've never won the NBA championship, that you'd want to you'd want to play on your 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 past history as much as you could. Yeah, you know, I I'm not so sure that that's only a uh, an NBA slash ABA uh, team and league thing. I I I feel that with uh, all of our looks back to uh, the NHL with regard to the WHA, certainly the NFL uh, loves to not. Uh, acknowledge any other uh, challenger league or team uh, in its uh, rich history, despite all the changes and and uh, and interesting stories that sort of came along the way. So, you know, it, it is that sort of, I almost call it love-hate relationship, but it's almost a, uh, uh, again, you have to wonder, I mean, and look, at this and this uniquely, this team, this franchise, right, would not be here had it not been for uh, the ABA. I mean, they were an original franchise at the beginning, they were one of the four surviving teams on the way out. And um, and again, you know, perhaps more foundationally than any other of the four teams that made it into the NBA, uh, oh, it's uh, it's life, it's heritage. And, and luckily, uh, a, a number of players and former coaches are still involved with the team. Um, you'd think there would be a little bit more love there than not. Yeah, I mean, I get the fact that they're trying to, you know, they're trying to sell this. I mean, the Pacers this year have kind of caught the city's imagination with Victor Oladipo and they're kind of fun to watch and they share the ball. And it's so they, the, suddenly the Indianapolis has, is a little excited about the Pacers again, which is kind of cool. And I don't think it's necessarily an indifference to, towards the ABA. It's maybe just not, I don't know, uh, maybe we're too close to it. Maybe sometimes, but to embrace 
to embrace the tradition and to see when you look up and you see whose numbers are retired. I mean, the fact that Neto's number is not retired and Freddie's number is not retired is ridiculous. They're part of the nucleus that made this city's basketball franchise, and they should be part of it. And Slick agrees, and and Mel always agreed. It's just that, um, you know, when when Neto's walking into a restaurant or a grocery store or something like that, and it's it's inevitable. Everybody, somebody always says, "Hey, Neto, I love watching you play." You know, that's. He hadn't played for 50 years or 40 years there, and, and people still remember. So that's pretty cool. What, what I think is also pretty cool, uh, and uh, I want to use uh, the rest of our time here for uh, your uh, for you guys to uh, uh, promote uh, promote the book, right? It's called We Changed the Game, and uh, it is uh, available for pre-order. When is it, uh, Robin, when's it coming out, and um, when and uh, how will we see more of you to, uh, to promote this book? Tell them, Neto. Well, I think the printing is supposedly going to be done at the end of the month, so it'll be available to get it uh, probably the first of March, the end of February. I know one thing. I talked to the publisher the other day, and I, it's on Amazon, and they, I don't know if they correct it or not, but I know if you it's like if you buy more than one book, you get free shipping and things like that. So I think everybody ought to go out and buy about five books a piece, and uh, and I think they'd enjoy. It. But but it's uh it's going to be out. We're going to have some book signings. It's all going to lead up to the uh, ABA reunion, which is in April sixth and seventh. Uh, they're going to have probably a hundred guys that used to play in the ABA, from uh, Julius Irving down to uh, uh, Billy Shepard here uh, uh, for the uh, ABA reunion. That's going to be held downtown. It's going to be a really great deal. We're going to have uh, some book signings there and. Uh, you know, we I think I think people will really enjoy this book. There's a lot of books been written, but there's never been one quite like this. And uh, I'm not bragging or anything. I'm just saying this comes from first person. This isn't stories. This is the real deal. And uh, it even amazed me some of the stories. Here's the thing, Tim. It's not it's not 500 pages. I think it's 240 pages. It's a pretty quick read, but it's pretty much the chronology of how this. This the whole thing is it, it could never happen again. Six guys put a thousand dollars in and get a basketball franchise. Are you kidding me? And 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 the pitfalls and the characters and the different changes in management and all the times they almost folded and the telethon and getting into the NBA, the NBA and how bad you got beat up with a merger and how how far that put the Pacers behind. It's this tr- it's this amazing journey of a little team that nope, nobody thought the ABA was going to be around for two or three years, let alone as long as it was. And nobody was really sure that, you know, anybody would even go to the games. So to think that it grew into what it did is it's, it's not just a sports story. It's this great historical story about Indianapolis, Indiana, and how one friend, one team and a bunch of guys with a nucleus of four or five guys and Bobby Leonard is the coach rallied the city behind a basketball team and it made it all the way down to downtown and then the next thing you know we got a football team and then we got restaurants and now we got seven thousand hotel rooms and suddenly indianapolis is this progressive city well do the pacers get credit for everything no of course not but without the pacers i don't think it ever happened and uh one one last thing i, I want to call out here uh is this uh, relationship and uh, the donation of uh, of some of the profits of this book uh, to something called the Dropping Dimes Foundation. You guys want to give me give our listeners a bit of a background as to what that's all about. Uh, and Noble, I believe, yeah, I can, it certainly is. I can tell you about that. Uh, 
I started a little uh, thing about eight years ago, nine years ago. The the ABA, all the ABA players uh, were supposed to, during the merger, were promised that they would be included in the pension plan with the NBA. And as usual with the ABA, everybody forgot, and practically everybody's dead now, so it doesn't matter. And they, you know, they none of these guys have a pension. And I've been trying to get them, or at least do what the NBA did for the pre-65 NBA guys, and give them a small pension, maybe a, a you know. 10% of what the NBA is getting, but still it's something for these guys. Cause there's a lot of guys out there, believe it or not, nobody made any money back then. And I've been talking to, we, I started out with almost 200 guys that were eligible for a pension eight years ago. And over 50 of them have died since then. And some of these guys are living in basically under a bridge and it's a thousand dollars a month would really help these guys. The NBA pensions are paying 20,000 a month to some guys. So it's, it's really unfair. And a guy named David, team ortho uh, team uh, eye surgeon and john was a ball boy back when i was playing he's now an eye surgeon for the pacers uh got him scott tarter who was with bozeman kenny downtown uh a lawyer he got together their big pacer fans with, with ted green who's a who's a um, documentary maker and they formed this charitable foundation because they're huge ABA fans to help ABA guys that are in need. And that's not necessarily guys that might be eligible for pension. This is a guy that played one or two years, and they've been helping guys out all over the country. Uh, they've helped. Uh, we went down to Kentucky into a guy that was in a nursing home, and they bought him some clothes. A guy named Charlie Jordan, who played with the Pacers, didn't have a dime, and all he wanted was a suit so he could go to church. We took him to a uh, clothing store and bought him clothes and shoes and a shirt. Uh, a guy named the Sam Smith who played the Minnesota Muskies didn't have a, didn't have the money to drive his own uh, college re, uh, championship team reunion. They they sent him to the reunion and paid for his uh, expenses. So it's a really a good deal, and we put together an advisory board that's great. Bob Costas is on our board. Dan Issel, Spencer Haywood, Rick Barry, Louis Dampier, Matt Calvin, George McGinnis, Bobby Leonard, Peter Vesey, myself. We've got 12 Hall of Famers on this uh, on this advisory board, so people realize that this is a great, great uh, little organization, and they're helping people out, and they're putting on the uh, ABA reunion too. Uh, all the profits go to the ABA reunion, so we've dedicated part of our profits to this book to the charity, and I think they do a wonderful, wonderful job. and uh, And I could name about six other things they've done, but I won't take the time up. But uh, it's a very worthwhile organization, and I'm proud to be part of it. It's the nicest thing Neto's ever done for the human race, Tim. <laughs> well, he hadn't done a lot of no, nice things, but it's, he's worked no. that. He's worked his ass off on this and the pension. And if it wasn't for Neto, I mean, he really has all these guys you hear that are destitute, living under bridges, don't have any money. It's true, and it's it's really sad how the NBA is just kind of act like these guys don't exist and. Uh, you know, Neto's been, he's been front and center trying to put this whole thing together for the last five or six years, and uh, he's worked his butt off. The sad part of it is, is what it would cost the NBA. They probably spend more in coffee creamer money at their offices than it would cost. It's, 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 it's a very small amount of money compared to the billions that the NBA has. But hopefully, we've been talking to the NBA, and I know Bob Costa has been helping us, and hopefully, we're going to get somewhere shortly. But uh, it, it, it's uh, it's going to be a pretty cool deal, and uh, and I'm just like I said, uh, it, I'm happy to do it, and uh, 
even Robin, you know, Robin was a, Robin. The only person we should take care of that wasn't a um, that wasn't a uh, player is Robin was one of my char- early charity cases. But I've got him straightened around. Yeah, he's okay now. That's it. All right, a fun chat. Thank you to Neto and Robin Miller for uh, enlightening us on uh, some more uh, interesting stuff about the Pacers, the ABA. Let's sort of recap all of this here. The uh, the book, uh, which uh, is a must-get, a must-read, uh, it comes out in the uh, the tail end of uh, February, early part of March. Uh, it is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. You will find a link to it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search for episode 48. You will find a link to it. The book, it's called We Changed the Game. How a new league, a small group of dreamers in some amazing situations changed the culture of a city in the face of basketball forever. It is uh, written by uh, by Bob Nedelicki, by Robin Miller, and uh, also uh, Dick Tinkham, uh, the co-founder, co-owner of the original franchise that uh, uh, that he was instrumental in helping bring to the city of, uh, of Indianapolis. We Changed the Game. That's the name of the book. Uh, and uh, we uh, encourage you to uh, grab a copy. It is published by Hilton Publishing. And um, as we said, uh, a portion of the proceeds of this book will be going to the Dropping Dimes Foundation, which we discussed uh, is uh, dedicated to uh, it's a nonprofit dedicated to helping uh, former ABA players uh, in financial and medical need as they advance in age. And, um, you know, for all uh, intents and purposes, we're not, uh, frankly, beneficiaries of some of the uh, the major money that exists uh, in today's modern basketball game. It's a great cause. And uh, you can find out more about them and make a donation and uh, and support at droppingdimes.org. Again, droppingdimes.org. And uh, it's also there where you will find more information about the 50th ABA celebration uh, that uh, the Dropping Dimes Foundation is helping put together. It will be in Indianapolis on April 7th uh, at Bankers Life Fieldhouse. And uh, you can find out all kinds of information uh, about that and, and just about every major player uh, that is still living and breathing from the ABA, including folks like Dr. J and, and a whole bunch of uh, Pacers players for sure. Uh, and Bob Costas will be there. He had the uh, St. Louis Spirits for one year. Uh, we'll be emceeing that event uh, on April 7th at uh, Bankers Life Fieldhouse in Indianapolis. Uh, and that should be a fun uh, hootenanny, as we say. And uh, I, I'm hoping myself to get there too, because it just seems like a real uh, rare opportunity to hang out and talk about um, the great times that was and uh, continues to be uh, the old ABA. All right, so uh, let's see. For us, we want to remind you that uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's our website. That's the place where you can find out everything that's going on with this here little show. Uh, all of our old episodes are there. All of our uh, the links to various books and, uh, and media that uh, we talk about here on the show. Uh, we've got a whole uh, uh, array of photography of, of cool images from the teams and leagues and people we've talked to. Uh, check it out. Good Seats, still available.com. You'll see all of our social links there as well. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. Uh, you will find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on Facebook, there's a page devoted to the show as well. Uh, check any and all of those out. Follow us and uh, communicate with us there. If you want to send us some email, just go to our website and you'll find a link to sending us an email as well. And last but not least, we want to thank our friends at Podfly Productions uh, for their expertise in helping put our show together production-wise. Uh, we couldn't do it without them. That's uh, David Gregerson and uh, Eric Begay, Corey Coates, and of course, the inimitable, the one, the only, 
Dr. Jerry Payne. I gave him the doctor title. I don't know if he's a doctor or not, but uh, it sounds good. Uh, he's uh, he's the chief uh, cook and bottle washer for this year's show, and we appreciate his efforts as well as the guys as well. Uh, podfly.net. That's the place to go. Podfly Productions. They can help you with just about anything to get you going into podcasting like I did and have, uh, and uh, encourage you to uh, check them out and tell them we sent you. All right, that's it for me. I appreciate your listening. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, take care, everybody. Oh, <laughs> oh,